Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new Exit for Podcast, a show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me snicking along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And while today would normally be another Magic Monday, we're going to be breaking in with a Team X special, covering recent issues of Wolverine and Sabretooth. We're going to kick things off with Marvel Unlimited's component of the Lives and Deaths of Wolverine event, with Life of Wolverine number 4, before turning our attention over to X Lives of Wolverine and X Deaths of Wolverine number twoses, and then finishing things out with Sabretooth number one by Victor Laval and Leonard Kirk. Now, this entire Wolverine event has been a really interesting opportunity to examine the multiple characters that Logan represents to everybody. Now, that's something we've talked about a lot on this show, how Logan has become such a storied, varied persona that he represents so many different archetypes, even within his own stories, that you could read an entire run of Wolverine and never really come across the version of the character that resonates with you. And in many ways, there's even an argument to be made that Sabretooth presents a similar opportunity Opportunity, although Sabretooth is by nature a much more complicated and problematic character. Now, one of the things about starting this off with Life of Wolverine number four is that it affords us an opportunity to take a look at a central argument that gets presented in both our coverage of Wolverine and Sabretooth. Wolverine is capable of thriving so well because of the team on his side, whereas Sabretooth frequently resorts back to his worst natures despite the team on his side, and Life of Wolverine number four by the incredible team of Jim Zub, Ramon Box, Hava Tartaglia, and VC's Joe Sabino gives us an opportunity to look at some times where perhaps Wolverine was not the honorable guy that we associate now, the very avuncular not quite drinking or smoking on page comics code uh, kind of guy that we love so much. And I think it's this Wolverine Infinity Comics love of exploring every moment of canon that is worth looking at that I'm appreciating the most. The team isn't shying away from some less well-received stories. Now, the Angel of Death story that is referenced early on in Life of Wolverine number four is by Mark Guggenheim, like that Mark Guggenheim, TV Mark Guggenheim. He had been working on a number of Wolverine playing against the trope of like the identity of the concept of death in a big, you know, he fights death in hell in a very literal way. It wouldn't be too far after this that Logan would semi-permanently die, so it's definitely a moment in his history that doesn't have too much impact on what we would come to read thereafter. Though, some of the things that this issue of Life of Wolverine manages to put all together are some of my favorite moments in the character's history. I think Ogun represents a really strong other for Wolverine to come up against. There's not a lot of excellent Wolverine rivals. There's a lot of, like, big dudes that, like, you know, can smash Wolverine. Cyber isn't the smartest, best, most thought-out villain to challenge Logan, but, like... It's fun to watch him kind of punch Logan around, right? Ogun is a brilliant mastermind who has somehow transcended death in a similar way to Logan's ability to continue surviving. And 
Ogun is a character that we've talked extensively about our love for on this show, whether it's in our coverage of the original Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries, or it's in our continued coverage of things like Wolverine Black, White, and Blood, where Ogun showed up for a Kate Pride story. There's really a lot to this character, a lot to be enjoyed. And speaking of characters who don't stop showing up, who leave us a lot to be enjoyed, right? I love seeing the references to Mystique here. One of the things that I think has been perhaps a complex relationship for me is the the relationship between Logan and Mystique is one that I very much enjoy. It's one that I very much ship, especially if it's not present. Especially if it's like a past thing that anytime you ever hear about it, you only ever hear about how it happened in the past. It could have even been a month ago, but it was a month ago. It's not right now, right? And for that reason, I really loved the Happy Holidays Mr. Howlett story that we covered around the holidays, me and Kevo, right? My husband, you know, we had a great time with that story. And finding room for this moment of mystique in an era where mystique is sort of like... I wouldn't say she's persona non grata because we definitely all do think that there's a lot to be said for the success of Mystique's attempts to reconnect her family and the value to undermining the unjust system of Krakoan false democracy, right? But at the same time, she definitely was running some dangerous games where perhaps the safety of Krakoa was not her first and foremost concern. And I truly believe that in his heart, Logan always does have the the safety of those he loves as his foremost concern. So in that regard, I think this sort of contrast of who Logan is and who Logan was, kind of a loner out for himself, but now he's this guy who is like the ultimate avuncular family man, contrasted with Mystique, who, you know, we see was looking to create her own family in the past and it was looking to build something big and now she just really wants to save and protect her family. And I love the duality of that because it does remind me of who Mystique is and what she's done to get to where she is. It's a valuable lesson when you can see from another character's eyes something about a third character. By understanding Wolverine and Mystique in terms of each other, I feel like I always gain a better perspective for the other each time. I do think the amount of cutting back and forth to Seraph and then the later in the issue reference to the wanderlust that takes him again, making this period of his life hard to follow, plus the references to the Spanish Civil War... I feel like this does really highlight an element of Logan's backstory that is a strike against my eternal, no, never make it cement, never put it into exactitude. By having avoided the exactitude of a specific backstory and specific timeline and specific date for so long, the muddiness of his chronology really shines through in this point, because it's not that there aren't adventures here, but it's sort of like, there's adventures there, you know what I mean? You kind of have to get a little bit hand-wavy about it. And I think for that reason, something like Life of Wolverine is a really necessary component to somebody who wants to take on the breadth of the character, but feels incredibly daunted by the perspective. Once upon a time, Marvel used to publish titles called sagas, right? Now, well before the free pick it up on your way out of the comic book shop sagas, or even the three ninety nine one issue sagas, there were a series of books called the Marvel Sagas, and they were like hardcover, vaguely. Uh, the Electra one featured exclusive art and story for Electra throughout the course of her four issues, and they featured original art by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen, while the Wolverine did not 
feature any original art that I can remember. The Wolverine Saga edition was four kind of cardboard hard issues that put a lot of this information into almost like a trade-like format, especially for back in the day. It It's a little bit Ohatmu, it's a little bit um, prose, but it really does give you a sense of who the character was. I think by virtue of the fact that there has been quintuple the canon since the the 80s and the 90s when you could do a saga book like that, you know, Logan could fill an encyclopedia at this point. How do you break that down? And then especially, how do you factor in one of my favorite moments in the history of comic books, which is referenced at the end of this issue with Taras Romanoff and ultimately bringing in Captain America? You know, it seems almost impossible that there would be room to talk about Captain America and Logan together, but it's part of the tapestry that Marvel is trying to remind us exists. There was a period in time where mutants really shouldn't be mentioned because it was too complicated for the sake of rights. How do you tell stories that you can't really get access to? But even in that murk, that era of don't touch the mutants, ah, right? Wolverine still managed to be a new Avenger to various degrees of success, you know? And I feel like one of the things about that is the connection between Logan and Captain America, even when Cap was gone, is a prevailing factor, especially Logan and Bucky having sort of, at times, a very tense, apprehensive relationship. There's a lot of layers to this, that I feel are really worth exploring. And Life of Wolverine is making it a pleasure each week. I keep so looking forward to seeing what part of Logan's backstory this creative team is going to dig out next and make clear for me where it goes. It's been a little bit uncertain because there's parts of Wolverine's backstory I just don't want to see. Like, not like, oh, they're so hard. They just kind of aren't great. And, like, that's just the virtue of having shared universe work where, you know, thousands of people contribute to this one idea over the course of 50 years. So the fact that the team is doing this with a deftness and a cleverness really leaves me feeling so positive on not just the main narrative of X-Lives and Deaths of Wolverine, but even the Marvel Unlimited sort of counterpart miniseries reminding us where the character has come from. But speaking of X-Lives and X-Deaths of Wolverine, we had an incredible conversation about the second issue of both titles, spanning from the seamless work that Ben Percy and Josh Kassara can commit to a page together, down to the incredible deft approach Ben Percy used to create differences in the pacing between the two stories, giving one more of a surrealist feel and the other more of an event comic feel. We had an incredible time, and we hope you guys have an incredible time listening. And if you guys like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So don't forget to hop over to Twitter and give us a subscribe over at X is for Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, a show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and chrono-skimming adventures week after week through their many weekly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram, traveling back into skinnier, younger versions of my own body with the help of Gene Gray at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm a doodle baby, and you can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. Hey guys, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at comic underscore canary. Hey guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on twitter and instagram at drewcifer3 that's at d-r-e-w-s-i-p-h-e-r-3 
And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And we're here today to talk about, like, the deadest guy. One of the things that is so interesting about the current Wolverine event that is raging through Marvel Comics is that many people aren't even sure how to follow it. So here today, we're going to do a double dose of Wolverine's death event and life event, I guess. I don't even know how to describe it, but we're here to talk about 10 lives and 10 deaths of Wolverine's matching second issues. Now, while both of them feature the incredible writing of Ben Percy, Lives of Wolverine features art by Joshua Kassara, color art by Frank Martin, and VCs Corey Pettit on letters and production. And then over in the world of ex-deaths of Wolverine, or as I like to call it, the Jane Foster book, Ben Percy is still bringing it on words, but we've got Federico Vincenti on art with Di Holima on colors and VCs Corey Pettit once again, representing all the words and all the design. Meanwhile, not to be confused with Life of Wolverine, the mini that is running on Unlimited alongside all of these. Just to like further complicate things, we're covering it on this show oh, so it's obviously. not like it's something that we're not talking about it's just it doesn't even factor at this point like that first issue of life of wolverine which i'm loving and i, I think i've actually covered the first issue like six times on this fucking show at this point but like it, the first issue really connects and then the second and third issues are really great advertisements for trades the second issue tells you to go buy origin 2 and origin and the third trade tells you that you should go out and check out wolverine origins and it brings up romulus in a way that nobody was looking for in one panel i disagree it's not an advert to go read it it's uh if you haven't read any of that stuff don't worry here is logan's chronology simplified well and i do think though that in a large way the life of wolverine side book is playing a pivotal role in that it's reminding people about some of the eras that logan is going to dial into throughout the course of this miniseries because so far, this is sort of like a greatest hits anthology box set of Logan moments. And I'm here for that. You know, I really do love a nice retrospective. But I think then I'm a little thrown by the presentation of this as an event when it feels a little bit more like, I don't know, like this feels like a really good retirement party for Logan. And I'm really fascinated by it. Drew, you came into this event like kind of trepidatious and then kind of excited. Where do you find yourself sitting on the precipice of these second issues? I have been reading like the old Claremont Wolverine run just like because I was like, oh, you know, it's like X Lives of Wolverine. So obviously they're probably going to reference that. So I like and I, that's one thing I like to do whenever anything comes out is read the old stuff. Like I have She-Hulk coming up on my on my list of things to read because of the show. I was like reading this the two series back and forth. I was like, well, I really didn't need to do this because it has like it's not even referencing at all, which like the title kind of implies that it would have. And I, the lives of Wolverine, it's like more more akin to that than the actual two series. I agree. I think in a lot of ways, you know, you think about maybe, oh, this is going to look back on his classic era, but TK, I'm going to actually ask you something about something you said to me earlier today, which is this isn't so much, and I'm extrapolating a bit on your words here, but <laughs> jumping through from Drew's point to your earlier point, this isn't so much a look back at Logan's history as it is a study of the caricature he represents in these stories. This is much more a love song to Logan's character than it is to his canon. Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, we're definitely at this point taking some liberties with his history, adding in moments that 
we can assume we're there, but we've never really had put on page for us. And that's totally fine from an author whose work throughout the Krakoa era has been really Logan heavy. I really appreciate that this is a character that Ben Percy connects with. I'm not blind to the fact that Logan is a huge draw for people when it comes to purchasing comic books. It all makes sense to me. I just think at this point, it's a little too much of a good thing for me in terms of really connecting solidly with this, especially because, you know, Ben Percy very clearly gets Wolverine. He's got a great perspective on him. He has a lot to say, but I think he gets a lot of other characters and I think he has a lot to say and write about them. And I wouldn't hate to see a little bit more of a focus on those characters in something that, you know, we can say it's not an event, but it it is. And that would would be really a way to sort of heighten the storytelling to bring other, especially in X lives. I mean, to bring other people into that would be pretty refreshing given the sort of hyper focus on Logan. I really agree with you. You know, Andy Lloyd, there's other tenors than Michael Crawford. You know what I mean? And I feel like Ben Percy has a really strong command of Logan in a way that has kind of left out other characters. And what a great pivot point to my next question, because Arturo, one of the things that I I've loved the most about covering the Ben Percy canon through Wolverine and his X-Force in the last couple of years with you has been your attachment to so many of the threads that weave together to kind of create the tapestry that Percy has been laying out for us and seeing so many of the Russian themes that you had commented. You were like, hey, you know, I like where he's going, but it does kind of feel like they got dropped. How did it feel seeing so many of the storylines that you've been waiting for come due in this burst of character? It's like such a great payoff because seeing all of these things starting to weave together is just really really gratifying this whole idea of omega red as now being like a test subject within x-force i mean obviously we're like going back a little bit there with, with time when we get to that part just really really interesting seeing beasts fuckery continue to creep around mikhail's been a bit of an enigma but bringing back like the cerebro sword and just all of these things all of these little seeds that he's been you know planting throughout this era and it's just really nice to see you know percy shine right now in a way still a little perplexed with exactly what's going on i mean i've got the basics you know we're you know it's the time jumping and a little bit of a reality warp so that there are stakes but it really does still kind of feel like a clip show and i love that you're bringing up the sort of sense of disjointed time because Evelyn, as somebody who has such a background in comics, that your history is predominantly in older comics that were passed down to you. You know, I love that we have really similar stories in that we came from nerd parents who nerded us up, right? How does it feel seeing these iterations of Logan laid out for you in a modern voice, which you've recently commented, you love the direction Logan's voice has headed in. Love seeing these old lives of Wolverine because you see him regretting some of the things that he's done, like being a stupid teenager or the stuff that he was doing back in the jungle. It really shows you how much growth he's gone through because he he can't stop himself from helping his past self and writing some mistakes that he feels so strongly about that he can't live with 
And even though Jean really kind of tries to remind him, is like, hey, we shouldn't really be changing the past. He's like, no, I need to. Like, this is stuff that I regret. If I can change this, then I absolutely want to. And that's been really interesting. And then at the end where he has to fight his former lover, who is most likely pregnant with their unborn baby, Dawkin, who Wolverine has like worked with his relationship with him for so long. And it's gotten to a good place now. And Dawkins a very important part of his life and he might have to kill her because of Omega Red and like controlling her and that's absolutely fucking insane that that's something that he's put in a position of because you can throughout the entire comic like that's such an important time in his life where he's like actually happy because let Wolverine be happy (laughs) for a moment please it's just that was the point where I got really like oh my gosh what's gonna happen I definitely need to see how this plays out at least And it's in that spirit, it's in that vein that I have so much trust in Percy, right? Like, I want to just temper and meter my initial hesitation on this book from Lives 1 with Life 1 and Deaths 1 really won me over. And then Life 2, Life 3, Deaths 2 really kind of still has me a little bit more than Life 2 did. But let's jump in with Lives 2, right? Well, Lives 2 did, not Life 2. God, this is... Marvel. I'm one more time, guys. New nomenclature, right? This is getting fucking crazy. We did Death of Wolverine. We, you know, it it gets to be a lot where it's the same storylines. Daredevil's got born again and reborn. X-Men has fucking God loves man kills and God loves man kills too. Like that's just <laughs> it's too much. Right. Well, and so- we had we had Hawks, Pox, Socks. Rocks. Rocks. And now we're we're we on double docks because coming, we're back to Destiny of X. Which is great. But yeah, this uh whoever came up with this this naming convention, it's really doing a number on me. So we kick things off with life just fuck. We kick things <laughs> off with lives too. I think the thing I find the most insane about this issue is that this is the moment where I no longer think there is a difference between a Ben Percy script and Josh. Kasara art. This issue felt like one thought all the way through in terms of production. I don't know that the issue's story was as strong as either story for deaths, right? I think deaths one and two are probably above either issue of lives for me, but I just need to start off with Josh Kasara and Ben Percy. It's like watching one person reach for the salt. I just got to call out the splash page where Logan is cuddled up to Itsu and he's like in basically the fetal position cuddled up to her and the little omega red you know avatar symbol is on on the forehead and the very spinal looking tendrils are wrapping around logan and it is both upsetting and terrifying and horrific and hot and sexy and like just incredible artwork you have to see this page and God bless Josh Kasara for uh, including canonically correct butt fuzz on Logan. Yeah, I, like not to not to put it out there, but like Logan should be furry. He should be a hot little furry dude with a nice furry little butt. And I really appreciated it as well. I'm glad someone else decided to call it out first. Well, and and short, a short, sexy king for sure. Yeah. Because the way he's cuddled up to Itsu, you know, obviously he's stronger and heavier and all that, but he's definitely shorter <laughs> and the way yeah. he's like curled up to her is just so he's like the toughest little spoon you ever did see 
and I think it's really beautifully represented the sort of coarse and um, kind of confrontational element because we could talk about this splash page all day like I can't stop seeing things that blow my mind the network of body horror emanating from her wrists is just it's breathtaking because look how supple she is and how soft she is and then here's this element of gross yeah and the way it just weaves throughout the page and also intersects with the grid pattern shadow from the window that is making just x's all over the page it's i mean it really does capture the essence of i think what percy wants us to get out of this event kasara just does such a great job with action sequences he does i mean he does it all right he does flashbacks he does internal thoughts and then he does these you know splash pages that are just breathtaking another panel i want to call out a little later in the story when omega red goes back to russia and is is greeted by mikhail and mikhail's pulls Omega Red's hair. That panel is gorgeous. And it's a lot about sort of a deconstruction of identity in this part. We're meant to think how big and tough Omega Red is. He's literally the motherfucker chasing Wolverine down. There is a specific decision in having his quote-unquote master pull him by the hair. That is a specifically diminutive, put-you-in-your-place little bitch boy move. And the viscera of the spit, of the of the hair, the flyaways, and then for Mikhail to quite literally penetrate Omega Red on the next page, there is such a proper sense of big dipsmanship here, right? Like, it really is, Omega Red is a threat. This guy's a threat to Omega Red. So it actually does, through art and story, weave a really powerful statement about the dramatics of the situation. Situation. And Drew, I know that if you're doing a classic Claremont reread, Claremont hops off at X-Men 3 and Omega Red doesn't start appearing till 4. So Omega Red really is the delineation of Claremont got out. So I know if you're reading classic Logan, Omega Red is still someone you probably know best from Percy's run. How does this character play out with your sense of classic Logan as you've been interpreting him through the pages of classic Wolverine? Yeah, so I haven't really gotten to him yet. I just started. I'm actually on the first issue of the Larry Hammett run, so not quite there yet. Yeah, I just kind of through this Wolverine run have been seeing him as like kind of like this big brute who doesn't really say too much or like think too much, you know, like he's just kind of, you know, like there, not much of a personality, but like in a kind of a menacing way. And that kind of is translating a little bit through this story as well. We need to get to, I think, the part for me that was one of the best gender moments that Percy has given us. I don't know that I love the sum of this issue's parts as much as I love the individual brush strokes of this painting. Jean doesn't get like, I can't believe you're making me watch you fuck another woman. How could you do this to me? And in my skirt, like she doesn't say anything like that. She's just like, ugh, okay. It's no different than Scott would be. Scott would be like, okay, Logan, we get it. You have stamina. Can we go? Like, it wouldn't be different. Jean, despite being Logan's 
lover, I feel, is not treated in any gendering way, but rather so much of this issue as a contextualization of the events between moments, right? We've talked about how we were going to get a Moira book between the raindrops. This is the Logan book between the raindrops. We're jumping back into these moments as far uh, as recent far back as X-Force, but as far back as, you know, Logan's first go kill things in the woods. And I think that seeing Domino be part of the team, she didn't maybe have as much agency as I would like, but seeing her be part of the team, making her a part of that moment mattered to me because just about nobody got dialogue this issue outside of Logan. So I really felt that while there was a very minimal presence of female story, there was a strong presence of female self in a non-gendered way. And I wonder how you guys felt about the, while limited interaction, in my opinion, positive ones. The cool thing with Jean and Logan is they're realistic that they, you know, that each of them have impact in other people's lives and, and you know, other lovers. That doesn't change the connection and the bond that they have that, you know, is obviously such a underscoring part of, of this era, right? Like Jean Grey came back and then it was like, okay, Jean is back with Scott. So what? So now they're just like happily ever after. And then like Krakoa hits and it becomes a lot more complicated than that. And although it's never really spelled out i mean it is kind of spelled out you know what i mean like they gene went with cyclops to start the x-men and she quit the quiet council with him and you know they're they're together and they're married but she and logan are clearly bonded and fucking and in love as, as well and and, and the three cool. of them share a suite together <laughs> And meanwhile, Scott's with Emma in, in X-Men 7, like cuddled up to her when he comes back. Yeah, yeah, it's it's awesome. The fact that Jean has such strong working relationships with both Scott in X-Men and Logan in X-Force and now in this book, it really speaks to, you know, again, the elegance and the broad understanding in the writer's room of the Krakoa era that these types of relationships relationships happen and they don't have to be constantly a source of conflict and negotiation. They can be something that facilitates more than just sex and romance between people, but really solid working relationships. Because if you've ever been in any kind of polyamorous relationship, you know that the type of communication that it takes to pull them off in a way that makes everybody happy and feel loved and fulfilled, that type of communication ends up transferring to so many other aspects of your life. And again, I think a lot of poly people will tell you that that instinct to do to work with your partners in more than just a sexual or romantic way really strengthens over time because you have gotten so good at communicating and working together. So seeing Jean in this role where she is incredibly responsible for facilitating Logan's actions and she has to be his guide and she has to be the person that does not care care at all that she's seeing him having sex with somebody else because they have a mission to be on. It works so well because we understand if we've been reading this whole thing that of course she doesn't care because they're all doing it and they love each other for it. 
but also because they have gotten there, it makes sense for her to be completely okay with it and mission focused and to be supportive of Logan on sort of multiple fronts to get him through this journey that for him is going to be really crushing in a lot of ways. And we see that when he is in South America, it's a moment that he really regrets. And Jean has to be the person that gets him through that and gets him to where he needs to be. It's such a change of pace from kind of what we saw, I mean, for decades, really, right? Yeah. They tried, you know, different flavors of it, but it's just, that's so tired, right? These like love triangles and jealousy and why won't he love me? And, you know, it's... I mean, it was tired by the Morrison run. Right, right. Yeah. And and Morrison flipped the table and, and like made something so interesting out of it, right? The more common concepts of, of relationships and pairings is just out the window. It's like, you know, that that's, that's there on the island if you want it, but they're definitely exploring a more open and fluid and poly kind of communal love and it's it's just really interesting and you know i can't agree more with everything you guys are saying i feel like you know my three-man polycule is on this show and then i also have a partner and i don't know that i could communicate and lead this 24 person group of uh passionate comic fans let's use that language uh, if I didn't have to have the communication skills to manage an emotional network of four people, yeah, it would be tired to see them not understand modality, right? Because, you know, when you're, to use words that sound way too similar, when you're discussing modernity in terms of romantic entanglement, you really need to access the idea that people can't be that stupid and function for very long. <laughs> in the real world, people have had experiences that form them. And that sort of even touches back on the experiences that formed the man Wolverine became during his time in South America. I wonder somewhat if Percy saw lives and deaths first or saw his Wolverine run first because my reaction here is was Maverick put in so that when he showed up here Team X would have impact or is Maverick here because we spent four issues on Maverick it needs to have had some impact so that's maybe my one question I do think that as we take a look at the larger body of X lives of Wolverine number two perhaps there's a few moments that feel like a few moments too many that would have better served earlier in the story. But I don't know. How do you guys feel about the number of tiebacks between X-Lives 2 and the greater body of X-Force and Wolverine? In Wolverine, we got a lot of X-Force stories. And here with X-Lives and X-Deaths, we're getting more just Wolverine-centric stories. I am enjoying seeing like his past and what has shaped him. But on the other hand, it's kind of like, okay, what else is there? <laughs> I'm feeling like some love-hate going on and like one one thing that i'm kind of thinking is that it would be really nice if like this series kind of summed up those two intertwining series and then going forward they could become maybe something a little bit different even though it's going to be the same writer like i know a lot of people want wolverine to become like a family book you know or like something like that still same numbering same thing but just change it up a little bit i i love that idea and i 
I couldn't agree more that a Wolverine book becoming like the family book would be so interesting. Um, get Scout in there, get Doc in, like everybody, you know. I'm always grateful for any of these titles that continue with the numbering. A fan of that. All I want for Christmas is a hundred issue run of something. I do definitely think with regards to sort of the tiebacks and what we're seeing of Logan's lives, it's getting to feel a little bit fillery because we know so much about Logan because he's such a popular character. He's one of those characters like Spider-Man that you can know so much about him without ever reading, like intentionally reading a Wolverine book or even X-Force. I think the story might have been better served to make some of these moments a little more like montages and you know i think we could get a lot of these body jumps and what he was doing there out in you know three to six panels and then do another one and save some page time for something else it's it's tough to say what because i don't know where this is going but for these two issues we've gotten a very clear repeated display of he's back in time he's somewhere he has to get into his current state of mind and take that body to go save charles xavier from omega red makes total sense really cool seeing it repeated so many times in different situations where we understand that the point and i don't think a ton is being added it makes me yearn for you know i mean like a really good example is seeing domino it, it to have some more page time for other characters to participate a little bit more i think would allow me to sort of invest in the book a little more heavily as opposed to just like waiting to get to the point. I wonder how much of that is because the story is best served by specific numbers of issues and, you know, trades and hardcovers. And there's factors that we don't even realize the way that every TV show is like 20 minutes and 36 seconds. It's not that every story is perfectly 20 minutes and 36 seconds. It's that that's what it is. It's 20 minutes and 36 seconds, right? So I think sometimes we do get into that thing of where like, you know, Ten of Swords did it beautifully where like nine contests were on three pages and it moved the story right along and you broke it down and slowed down for others. So I do think exactly what you're saying there is room for. And speaking of things that there is room for, we are certainly not done with our discussion of Lives of Wolverine, but I do need to bring up the other title we're here to discuss today, uh, Jane Foster book. And (laughs) Jane Foster book this month was, you know, it had a shockingly small amount of Jane Foster for me this month. I was not, where was Ungenborn? Where was like, where was the transformation? Where was Mr. Horse? There are certain things I look for in a Valkyrie title, but since this technically is a Valkyrie title and I need to just shut the fuck up about it already. Wait, wait, right? were you being cute or is the horse actually <laughs> named Mr. Horse? Because it's comics and, you know. Valkyrie has a horse named Mr. Horse. It's really named Mr. Horse? Okay, that, yeah. made, that literally just made my day. Wonderful. We I love in- him so much and he's like so badass. He's so great. Sorry, we really love Valkyrie on this show. <laughs> I mean, Valkyrie's not my ministry. I'm not, I didn't even know Mr. Horse was actually named Mr. Horse. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, you want to call it the Valkyrie book. I'm calling it the Moira X on the run book. Yeah. Let's talk about Moira XCX on the run. So (laughs) 
When I started this issue, I knew I was going to get more of, as Drew pointed out, my inevitable new Logan toy that I desperately need so badly. But I did not expect to get such further development on Moira right away. If X Lives of Wolverine is taking its time and it's a slow hit, this is like, this shit hit the second it hit your tongue. Like, you're already fucked up. And I feel like X Deaths isn't stopping to breathe in a way I appreciate. The one comment I will make is there's that moment where Moira cuts off her arm and then uses the iron to cauterize the wound. And I'm fine with that. I am not fine with it. That was insane. That was, like, I'm not, whenever there's, like, something like like a surgery or like an amputation or like you know injuries like that on tv like it really really gets to me the fact that this in a comic was able to kind of get that squeamishness out of me without it being you know off-putting it was like just the right balance of horror but you know make me think about it rather than it needing to be like super visceral on the page but yeah that was uh that was super intense and Moira's hard man like that it, nobody said she was soft all right, so now the question, Evelyn, would you do it if you were a lady on the run? Probably, I would try. I would probably definitely pass out from it, but I would probably be like, one, two, three, fuck it. <laughs> I I like to think I'm a survivor, but I'm also kind of the person that at any little inconvenience will be like, I will guess I'll just die. So... <laughs> <laughs> uh, mood. Yeah, no, there is no way I could actually do this. Impossible. Like, I, I I, can't even look when I'm getting a needle in my arm. When they're taking up, like, I just can't even look. And, like, me doing it myself? It, no, uh-uh. I'll, I'll run around with my little low jack arm. <laughs> Anyone who listened to Inferno 4 or talked to me about Inferno 4 knows that that book fucked me up royally. Moira's mindset as the book ended and her determination to produce the cure and to give it to children before they develop their mutant powers... I still can't read it without getting choked up. I barely can talk about it now without getting choked up. I was upset. And I, too, was not really expecting that we were going to get Moira right away. There is something very cathartic about seeing her have to struggle like this and seeing it as a form of penance or comeuppance for what I feel is her betrayal of the Krakoan dream. So I'm reading this book with sort of rapt fascination. I am not somebody who indulges in schadenfreude to a great degree. So I feel this sort of conflict of feeling that this is right that the position that moira is in is the position that she put herself in and that this is the continuation and i i believe eventual resolution of her planning and her scheming sort of against her own initial dream and that was i mean to me that was one of the more interesting things was the panel or the series of panels where she talks about it was her dream as well but i still am watching kind of with my my hand over my eyes because it is getting 
really dark for her and really, really bad. And who better than Mystique to be the one on her heels, you know, making her pay the price for her betrayal of her race, basically. I said it before, I'll say it again, I never get sick of Mystique's gag. Surprise, bitch. Here I am. Like, (laughs) never gets old. Honestly, like, one of my favorite and the other cool thing about that power is that it lends itself so beautifully to this medium. And it's just, it's fantastic. Like, the, the moment where a character's eyes go yellow and you're like, oh, that's the first sign. Here we go. And you turn the page and like, wham. It's just. I agree with you. Love it. It doesn't get old. It doesn't. doesn't, But here it felt like it should have been a little faster because I knew it was going to happen. I maybe needed like three less panels of it. Mm -hmm. Like number one, it is no offense to X deaths of Wolverine and the beautiful job the art team does there, but it doesn't maybe have the same emotional resonance because I haven't been following this artist's interpretation of Wolverine the way I've been following Kassara's Logan. I would have rather seen the pages balanced just a little differently in this to maybe highlight some of the sort of eccentric born of the vision of Chris Boccolo sort of style of art that this book generates right my only thing about deaths the pacing was a little funny for me how did you guys feel about that combination in deaths maybe even in contrast to life I mean when you talk about following Kassara and Percy's Wolverine the interesting thing about this book is we are not really following Wolverine. Like this is not a Wolverine story. So it benefits from that insofar as the comparison is relatively limited. We do have a Wolverine in this story, but he's a boogeyman and his presence while impactful in these two issues so far has been relatively limited in terms of, you know, time on page. So what we are really looking at is primarily a Moira story, you know, with some solid mystique and destiny. And as far as that goes, it's doing a very good job. You know, the idea that Moira has to change her look for stealth is great because obviously it makes sense. She's on the run, but also because it gives us a new style of the character for the artist to play around with and removes some of the expectation that we're going to see a certain interpretation of Moira as we've seen her throughout the Krakoa era. So the art, as everyone has said, is absolutely fantastic. I have enjoyed it immensely. Both artists um, on both titles, I thought it was just really, really good. And especially with X Deaths, I really enjoy that the different, the style seems to kind of almost change very subtly between time periods. That was something that I thought was like ingenious. And I just, I really appreciated that. Pacing wise, it's not the best, you know? It's all I really have to say about it. (laughs) Yeah, there's just something a little, like, it's not bad. There's just like an unbalance to it, I think, for me. Yeah. All of these titles, it feels like a, a bit of a jumble, specifically Life of Wolverine and X Lives of Wolverine being this tiny, whiny, you know, virtual reality slash dream sequency type of, but it's really happening, you know, weirdness. And you're in the present, but you're also in the past. And then we have the flashback to this, you know, unknown mission that Omega Red went on and what happened with, with Mikhail and, you know, revealing the, the, the tracking device and all of that, right? So 
So whereas that storyline is moving in that weird kind of watercolory way, I really appreciate that over here in X Deaths, in the, the Trojan Horse book, the Moira on the Run book, it's pretty clear. And it's action and it's go, go, go. And, you know, no rest for the weary. And and I appreciate that. I appreciate that, that this is very much grounded, you know, here in the real world, you know, and we're not in this weird head trippy space. Not too much really happened in this issue. It is just kind of like an issue of Moira on the run with like interludes of this like boogeyman Wolverine. Like she cuts off her arm and that's really like the main summary of this of this book. Like I think the art in X Lives is better. Like Arturo said, I like the watercolor aspects of the coloring um, a lot more in that book and how it's kind of continued from Wolverine and X-Force from before and it kind of just like ties it all in really nicely. And it's sort of that sense of style difference that does create an enormous separation between these two titles for me. One of the things that I keep thinking about with the difference between Inferno, X-Lives, and X-Deaths is sort of maybe perhaps even the way I look at the difference between Hawks Pox and X-Men by Hickman, where Hawks Pox felt like this magical separate thing. And then as much as I love Hickman's X-Men, it's a superhero comic. It's still a really cool one and a really good one, but it's not really the same kind of idea. And Inferno doesn't really read like a superhero comic as much as it's fighty fight punch punch. And I don't think X-Lives does either, but I think X-Deaths does. So there's sort of this weird X-Lives feels like the more thematic sequel to Inferno, but X-Deaths feels like the literal sequel to Inferno. And in that regard, I do think that this pseudo event for what it is, is a fantastic study in the way that comics as a medium is capable of such dynamic responses to itself. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. I'm, Inferno had such enormous ramifications for the future of Krakoa that it does really require looking at both the sort of emotional and thematic fallout and then the literal, okay, what comes next? And, you know, comics and tie-ins and the things that we're used to make it possible to weave these stories together in a way that gives us time to breathe and think between moments. There's some titles that feel like, you know, like superhero comics, and there are other issues and events, even just single issue, right? There there have been, it, like the Crucible stands out, you know, top of mind. Like there have been issues where it moves the broader story forward. It says something in a new and fresh way. X-Death is delivering kind of that, continuing the big story, this whole Krakoan era. It, this is moving that forward in a way that was very unexpected. And it, I think this is also showing a good amount of versatility on Percy's part, because whereas X Lives feels more like his style, right? Like kind of like the gritty Logan loner, you know, kind of internal monologue. Like it, it has more of that vibe. It's like a little grittier. This feels more action packed, more of an ensemble, you know, cast. He's spinning a few plates at the same time. And you know, I actually think I might have a little bit more reason to believe that my guess that the Logan in the black suit with the techno-organic claws really is like 
Logan in there. When Destiny referred to him as death, it reminded me of the time that Logan was believed to be dead, was on an operating table, and while Xavier stood over him using his telepathy and doing an autopsy on Logan's body, over in the pages of Astonishing X-Men, a partner miniseries that was to be read with Uncanny X-Men, Wolverine was actually death. Like, Apocalypse's death. Like, you know, death. And that led into Apocalypse the Twelve. Now, I wouldn't really think much of that except Marvel just spent a lot of time reprinting it, talking about it, promoting Hickman's use of it, really driving it forward. So that era in time, even if it's not one that people still talk about with any regularity, it's one that is at least one that Percy would have been familiar with recently. So I do wonder if we're in thinking about the incarnations of Logan, if in a matter of speaking, this one is death as Logan has been. So I am really in love with that design. It's so basic. It's so plain. I think I just love the way I love anytime Sienkiewicz's art transforms what would normally be a somewhat less dynamic page and just this techno-organic lusciousness bursting into my book is so likable and so enjoyable. You know, that's something that I really, it just adds something. And even in this book of hypercolor, it adds something dynamic and foreign that I love. I'm excited to see where this all goes. Uh, more so, you know, I, I'm making no bones about it. I'm definitely more intrigued by what's happening in deaths than in lives. I don't know how these are all going to tie together. I mean, obviously, I know how lives and life are, are working together. I don't know how, how this all clicks. I'm okay with that so far. Yeah, I, I'm very curious to see where Moira lands at the end of all of this and and where does mystique land nico you mentioned and we've talked a bunch about the fact that we a lot of us were not expecting to get the moira story continued immediately we were expecting to get you know she she goes underground and we don't hear from her for you know a year or two and then suddenly she comes back and is the big bad or who knows I really love that the story is subverting that expectation and taking really a big risk in just going for it as far as the Moira story goes. You see little things that subvert expectations like the fact that she cut off the techno-organic arm, this thing that all of us saw on the last few pages of Inferno and thought, that's going to be huge. Yeah, they made it this big deal. Yeah, yeah. it was amazingly and, breathtaking. Yeah. And the fact that it, she just cut it off, despite the fact that it might come up again and, and be something important, it's, you know, I, I think we all thought like, oh, you know, in a year when she comes back, she'll be a phalanx. You know, that's obviously not going to be the thing. It's... I really respect that this book is zigging when we think it's going to zag and what that means in terms of the future of Moira, of Krakoa, what Destiny of X is going to give us. Now is a really good time to be surprising us all with moves that we never thought were coming. And it's also a thing that I'm curious about. I don't understand that saber tooth moment in X Lives. Wolverine's gone rogue, Professor. I'm going to go kill him. Like, yes. Yep. I don't understand that moment. We've talked a bit here and there about the difference between Wolverine and Sabretooth. What if Sabretooth had more people who loved him? And I think it's more like, I wonder how a Wolverine could fail with so many dynamic psychics about him. There was a real weird sense of Gene and Chuck have got this. Like, 
Logan is essentially a murder puppet <laughs> for whatever the fuck Gene and Chuck are doing. And I mean, I think it's stopping murder. So I think he's murder puppeting anti-murder, you know, that's fine. That's fine. Right. <laughs> but I found myself really thinking about what role could this Sabretooth play? Knowing that we have the Victor Laval series, knowing that this is weekly, not understanding the purpose of that moment, not necessarily understanding the purpose of the Cerebro Sword constantly being mentioned here to jump back to uh, Ten of Swords for a second. Cerebro Sword, Cerebro Sword. Okay, well, I'm ready for it to come due, but now I'm also curious how that's going to play into the bigger picture of Krakoa again. Like, are we about to see some sort of Krakoan offshoot Russian colony? Like, legitimately, are they going to declare you, you, I can't even come up with a joke, like, but like European Krakoa, European Krakoan Asian nation state. Like, I'm really curious how all of these pieces can yet come together. I mean, there's six more issues. I'm not exactly worried for time. And, you know, this is Marvel. So we're all going to find out that there's an uh, Omega finale issue after issue 10 that no one saw coming. Yeah, I mean, that's and that that last, you know, no one saw coming. There are so many things here. And this book has already established that we can come up with as many theories and dream scenarios as we want. We are not necessarily going to have any idea what's coming next. And that makes it really exciting. I just think that we're going to get more, like, unironically, more Jane Foster. She's, <laughs> she's the avatar of death. She's beaten cancer. She's a big deal. She's one of a kind. There's stuff going on in Avengers. So I would not be surprised if Percy and Aaron, who are working together through at X-Force and Avengers are continuing that sort of thematic tying together. And I'm really excited for what comes next. I don't know, but I'm, I'm ready to see Omega Red and Logan hook up again. Yes, yeah. Hold each other. Yeah. Hold each other. You know, that's those tendrils of love. There's a, a Europop album for you. Tendrils of love. Dazzler's next. Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. It was such an awesome opportunity to talk with this group of people about Sabretooth, and there were so many points that were raised that forced me to confront my own notions about this book, right? Like, I think Sabretooth, like, as a, as like a dude, sucks. You suck so bad, right? But the way he was handled for however bad he sucks is indicative of a sense of injustice that runs through the very current of the Krakoan ecosystem. And this discussion was so central to all of us getting a chance to put that into words. And I could not have been prouder to have an opportunity to be part of this. And we hope you guys enjoy it as much as we enjoyed making it for you. Don't forget we make this show three times a week. Now normally it's Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays. But every now and then the Weapon X urge takes over and I just gotta go full Logan. So keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. We hope you enjoy this last segment and we'll see ya. Hey everyone, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and many prisoners week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. Mi gente, what's up? It's Arturo, y ya tu sabe, you can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. 
Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And uh, right next to Steve is Nathan, and uh, you can find me on my Nintendo <laughs> Hi, it's your local Sabretooth apologist, Broadway. You can find me on Twitter at B-W-A-Y-3-R-D. That's B-W-A-Y-3-R-D. And hey, everybody, it's 24601, and you guys can find me going to prison for stealing some bread over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. My friends, we have assembled our own little quiet council here to discuss the fate of one Victor Creed. We're talking about Sabretooth number one with writer Victor Laval, art by Leonard Kirk, colors by Rain Barreto, letters by VCs Corey Pettit, design by Tom Muller, and cover art by Ryan Stegman, J.P. Meyer, and Frank Martin. Dying to get into this, you guys. It has been almost three years coming. Yes! So it has been my biggest grievance since the founding of Krakoa. The pit has been a problem. And Sabretooth and the way he found his way in there has been a problem from day one. So when I first heard that, that Victor Laval was, was going to be doing a Sabretooth title, I got very excited. You guys know I am on the villain beat like that is my shit despite my excitement and my hopes and my expectations here comes victor laval blowing them all out of the water i mean i was excited when i saw that it was victor laval but i have been dreading the point at which we have to deal with Sabretooth. it is such a complicated issue and it is something that i like conceptually knowing that we had to get there at some point i was so worried that even if there's a great author on this book once we introduce Sabretooth back into the world we start to run into all the same sorts of problems so i was personally kind of dreading it i'm curious how the rest of the room was feeling I've had several heated arguments on Twitter.com. <laughs> Victor was put into prison under the most bullshit fucking circumstances. And in addition to that, like just the rank hypocrisy of saying that we have poor prisons and then creating something that is like a super prison, yeah. like way worse than a prison, <laughs> like way worse than a, in a U.S. prison. But I don't think necessarily worse. I think we're seeing kind of... Uh, uh, hang on, uh, hang on. It's still early. Let's get, let's get everybody's <laughs> I did think it's a chance to keep showing the cracks in the Krakoan society. It was so early on in like even Hoxpox itself that we had saw that happen that we just got to see that Krakoa, even though it's an idealized state, it's still got fucking flaws and it's still got problems. It's kind of the magic of being able to poke Hickman's run with a stick from a distance now. I'm sure that there was an understanding of the hypocrisy that is throwing Sabretooth in the pit all along. But, like, I mean, I've, I've been the one saying it the most. Like, look, I appreciate Daddy A, but we're celebrating a killer. We're basically like, hey, guys, look, it's Ted Bundy of eugenics. And we're like, hey, let's make him Daddy. And Sabretooth still got thrown down the pit. And that's just always felt a little uneven. Yeah, I mean, I think Sabretooth face accountability at some point but his victims were not even involved in that decision i don't know it always sat poorly with me and i'm glad that we're going to be exploring it with somebody who wants to talk about restorative justice for example and on that note i do want to hear broadway's thoughts before we get yeah. into everything else i got into a whole thing on facebook which i haven't been doing a lot lately 
about fare evasion, like when people like don't pay for the bus and things like that. So like, I'm one of those people who is very much like crime is man-made. Like whatever you decide is a crime is a crime, right? So like they decided that retroactively Sabretooth had committed a crime, which I think is fundamentally sort of it fundamentally undermines the mission and I think uh, of Krakoa and also I think it's such a human thing to do like that's the whole scene with Sabretooth at that like maximum security prison before Emma comes and gets him is that they were like we can figure out whatever we can backfill whatever crimes for you so I think Hickman planted that seed as just like a crack in the structure right to like make us sort of question Krakoa but I also think that Sabretooth is a monster and like I feel like they put him on pause and now they're having to deal with the fact that like you can't just put a person indefinitely on pause especially Sabretooth out of all people especially while having Omega Red running around. It's Xavier dressed as Lilo from Lilo and Stitch and she's pointing at Sabretooth and she's going but look at his badness level <laughs> and like it's just the picture of Sabretooth as Stitch with his badness level filled way the fuck up and he's going and, like it's it's amazing. <laughs> So before we get into it, I want to remind everybody here and listening the order of events that led to the point at which we're at now. Starting with Sabretooth on a mission with Mystique and Toad, doing some wanton murders like he does, getting arrested by the Fantastic Four and being brought to an international court. He gets taken in by Emma Frost and told that he'll get Krakoan justice. At this point, the Quiet Council has not even had their first meeting. We see the first meeting of the Quiet Council in issue six of the house of x at that point they decide on what the laws for krakoa will be and then they decide that victor has violated those laws and they will consign him to the pit i remind people of this because there's a lot of like oh well this person did this thing wrong and this person did this thing wrong and there are plenty of villains in the mix but it's incredibly interesting that regardless of who did anything after house of x6 pretty interesting that we established the laws and then put the man in jail in a way i've always felt like that decision was almost like burn him in effigy as proof of quirko injustice like it was unjust from the from its inception it was unjust from the moment it happened but it was proof positive that hey look we have our own nation but one of our laws is if one of our kind kills one of the flat scans pow pow baby into the hole like so i think pow pow into the hole is the name of my adult movie oh my god same <laughs> there's an element where it's almost like not quite that he was manipulated into becoming an example, but he was left to his own devices and sure as shit fire, he did what he's going to do. And then here you go. Here's our, our prime example going into the hole. And in the yeah. three years that we've had the hole, you know, it's notable that we get a few more additions, you know, this time around or in this issue. But prior to this, who else have we seen go in the hole? Nature Girl. <laughs> It didn't actually go. He didn't even stay. More recently, we had Toad, you know, basically, oh, yeah. you know, playing within character, sacrificing himself to 
you know, to, to save Magneto. And of course, Nanny, Nanny and Orphan, Orphan Maker. Maker yeah. Nanny and Orphan Maker, yes. And even then, there's still some weird questions. I'm not even entirely sold on the idea that they have been fully thrown down there just by who it is. Same. Like, Oya doesn't Oya. strike me as the type to, you know, to do something that would break one of the three laws. So I'm super curious if this is one Victor Laval is like sort of playing kind of surrealist games but also Doug and Krakoa are also up to something. I feel like so much of the Krakoan era specifically with the council is like games being played. There's something more happening with those five additions at the end of this issue. Like it just seems off to me. I was not sure if that was an illusion, another illusion, because how can you yeah. tell? Um, and and by who, or if that was like for real? I kind of I kind of think it'll be for real, but also it's like Victor is the king of hell down here, and it's, he's created himself as a devil, and we can, we can talk about that at length later on the episode. But like it was, it's so difficult to take anything at face value in in that pit. But what if Sabretooth is also just bored now that he's the king of hell and he created these constructs just to occupy his time, occupy his right? Mind? Interesting choice of constructs. <laughs> I don't give Sabretooth that much credit i don't know if these are the real mutants or if it's you know like a simulation constructed by doug slash warlock slash krakoa to i don't know see if they can bring out the best in in victor creed but the fact that like reality is so topsy-turvy down here that we see you know king creed butcher his way across the planet basically to become you know uh his infernal majesty saber like i just I, I love the excess of that i love that you all kind of went to there's something up with how the people wound up down in the pit from a you know maybe there's something else going on here in one direction i actually wondered number one i don't trust the quiet council i don't know how those people wound up in there but madison no. jeffries definitely strikes me as somebody who found out something somebody didn't want him to find out maybe he mapped a no place. or they found him with danger yeah i could see Fox yeah <laughs> number one like you know there's some sort of what if the quiet council just didn't want these people around number two that when Sabretooth pops up in the trees for a moment and he starts to pop up i mm-hmm. wondered if what if these people were in the process of being eggified what if this is some part of the cycle of Krakoa and the prison itself is an unnatural state? There shouldn't be a hole to throw people down. And these particular people are sort of transient energy that Sabretooth is coming across that he really shouldn't be. The data page in which he tries to speculate on what the the pit is. You know, he asks, is it Krakoa's stomach? Is it its butt? Is it its heart? No, that's too dumb. I think that is a breadcrumb that's leading us to, in some way, this is inside Krakoa. It's part of the ecosystem. And it well may be that he's interacting with other parts of the ecosystem. Yeah, And that the position he's in, to Nico's point, is like actively unhealthy to Krakoa, right? Like we've seen in X-Force these tumors and things like that. We've seen all kinds of weird stuff. And the Krakoa as an island was not built to do, again, to Nico's point, the pit, right? It's mostly like, you know, sapolo psychic energy. But this whole like creating some sort of extra, I don't even know how to describe it, like sort of like pocket dimension inside of itself is probably very unnatural. And I would imagine having Sabretooth in there is probably really unpleasant for Krakoa. And so again, I can't help but wonder when like, you know, Krakoa's manifesting 
images of uh, Sabretooth in like the trees and stuff. And in the panel on the page where that happens, Krakoa is like leering in the background. And I wonder if this is its attempt to be like, this has to stop. Like, I don't like this. And you guys need to figure out something else to do because that's not what we agreed to. I think it's interesting, the discussion of where the pit is, because I mean, we're told by Xavier and at least Xavier thinks that Sabretooth is like essentially comatose, aware, but unable to move. And I rather think that's what's happening. I think that Sabretooth is all in his mind. That's how he got to go to space. I I don't think it's like an area so much as I think he's literally surrounded by vines and in his brain and so like the question of whether Oya and the others are constructs or whether they are having a shared dream experience like elsewhere in Krakoa somewhere with Sabretooth is really interesting to me but I don't think they're in bodily harm if only because Doug wasn't either even if they're really down there but the thing I wanted to say earlier was uh, Arturo brought up Sabretooth's like change of mind after killing everything that he ever could kill, everything that ever hurt him, as he says. I was heavily struck by how limited his imagination is because he has that great page where he's like looking up at the sky and he's thinking to himself and he thinks, you know, like, have I imagined what I could be? You know, everything I could be. And then like, it's just like being a king, uh, being CIA, but in space, and then eventually making himself the king of hell. He he makes himself into like a Krakow satan you know cast out of paradise rather be the king of hell literally than serve above literally and i thought that was really interesting i thought that was really funny it, it tells a lot about sabertooth's character but it is super nice to have moments of reflection from a character that i've never thought capable of reflection at all like that that bit about him talking about the number of brains a leech has and number of hearts a hagfish has seemed like extremely out of the character that i'm familiar with and i i think we're going to get to see a lot of depth uh, unraveled in this absolute sociopath i fully agree with you that like a dreamscape is probably the best for describing what he's going through this kind of reminds me of danger working with the x-men and was running rehabilitative programs it's something that we've seen before uh, Cassandra Nova, you know, back in the Morrison run, several people dropped the ball after after Morrison teed up that Cassandra Nova was was trapped in uh, stuff. What? But yeah, and stuff. now she's everyone's favorite marauder. I love that we're kind of revisiting that. And what if some of these like psyches are kind of you know bleeding down into the pit? I feel like Krakoa as a character, it's so easy to overlook and just kind of Krakoa is like part of the furniture. But we know that Doug, you know, kind of has his own opinions and his own, I don't want to say agenda, that sounds a little too underhanded, but you know, let's say priorities and perspectives. Stands to reason that Krakoa, one, has their own, you know, perspectives, and two, is maybe even developing a little bit more, you know, as time goes on, what they can support and what they stand against. And the fact that, you know, Victor has been tied up down there in virtual reality vines or whatever maybe doesn't sit well with him. You mentioned Krakoa as a person, and the funniest part of this to me was the part where Doug is interrogating Sabretooth in that holding cellish area. They look at the two-way mirror in the way that you see on cop shows, where there's like another detective standing behind the mirror watching it all. Behind the mirror is Krakoa. Like a tree. Like a tree, yeah. That's extremely (laughs) funny. The Warlock briefcase. I mean, this cosplay is just waiting for somebody to grab it. Like, it is... A yellow suit, a black tie, and a 
briefcase that looks like Warlock, and it's G. Yeah, you're investing a lot in that briefcase for the cosplay. Okay, <laughs> but that, that briefcase makes it. Because it's Blevins. Yeah, it's not really Sinkevich. Good. It's like, it's that era right after where, like, everything was It is Blevins. Yeah, it's, it's so perfect. It's so Blevins. Oh my god, I love that yes. you're here with me. Thank you. Because, like, all I could think is I, this is... I'm glad you said it. It's somebody saying, I love you to this era that people just sometimes forget about a little bit, and, you know, that's that era where Birdo's dad Dad was like a piece of shit, and like Bernard Dad was always a piece of shit. Yeah, <laughs> that's who Skids is named after. Skids Blevins because uh, they loved mm-hmm. working with Bert Blevins so much. And no way, yeah. I didn't even know that. And so it's it's just such a special thing to see this. So much of the violence that Sabretooth enacts has been against women or using women as a device to torture Logan. One of the things that scared me most about bringing Creed back is the fact that he is the quintessential most evil heartless reveling in terrible acts villain that we really have you know even when we talk about people like apocalypse and sinister who do horrible things there tends to be at the very least in sinister's case like there's a motivation for science he's trying to take things to another level or make a discovery not that that justifies anything but with creed it's always just violence for violence sake for pleasure and for torture and often a against the most vulnerable for that purpose. I'm wondering if you guys have any perspective on if there's anything unique about Sabretooth's criminal history and his essence compared to some of the other villains we see, like somebody like Mystique, who has had her own fair share of murders. Is there something that makes Creed worse to a level where whether or not he deserves something like the pit, he can be said to be too problematic to continue to exist on Krakoa? Yeah, absolutely. And it's exactly what you just said. It's the violence specifically against women. It's like Creed is basically like, okay, what if a villain that is a slasher slash rapist, but a mutant? And there you have it, right? Like he's a savage beast, but he's also very mean spirit very you know he he wants to torture he gets off on it and well before you know or well while they were under the comics code authority they're not going to have Sabretooth raping people but it always felt like the subtext it always felt like and then even you know in the 90s with birdie right when he gets his little sidekick made famous by you know one of the best video games the marvel versus capcom where birdie would pop in as like Sabretooth's, you know backup or whatever mild level telepath that she gave him like the glow that would kind of make his his homicidal tendencies subside he would feel you know at ease a little zen and not so murderous but even with her their whole relationship was portrayed in such a toxic abusive codependent kind of way that although you never saw him hit her it always felt like the implied thing clearly like prison abolition is at the heart at the heart of this book i also think the timing is very fascinating because you've also got x lives and x deaths right where we're examining wolverine and and omega red and we've been sort of like ben percy has been cooking the two of them up as like like omega red is just spooky soviet wolverine right and Sabretooth is wolverine who has leaned into all of the things that logan like fights against what is fascinating to me especially in thinking of the sort of prison abolition context is like not redeeming Sabretooth, but sort 
sort of humanizing him. Because what seems clear to me is that Sabretooth knows what he's good at. You know, like Logan's always like, I'm the best at what I do. The difference, I think, is that Sabretooth is like, I'm the best at what I do. And it's fun, right? Like he gets off on murdering because he's really good at it, right? Like a really good tennis player enjoys playing tennis. Victor Creed is like murderous Serena Williams. What is fascinating to me, and, and I see this also as like, one, a Black person, this is also written by a Black person, and as a DC resident, where we've had to toil with programs about getting people out of jail instead of leaving them there forever, I'm always struck by like what leads people to that place of projecting violence everywhere and sort of victimizing people. And I've always had a hard time with this because you end up sounding like you're like, oh, no, the person that like murdered a child, like you sound like you're empathizing with them. But I found that like part of being a part time prison abolitionist is being like that person's a human, too. And we should probably figure out how to fix them or like get some of that shit out versus sort of throwing them away like Sabretooth is sinister and insidious, but I'm always curious, like, why? And some of it, I think, is a sort of general kind of toxic masculinity coupled with superpowers. Like, I know a lot of guys that could easily be Sabretooth, but I'm also curious as to, like, what sort of evils were done upon him? And we know via Weapon X and Team X, some of them, but, like, I don't know. There's something about the fact that, like, Logan gets to be a good person, and I'm always curious as to what happens if Sabretooth got an opportunity to do something else or to be productive. Yeah, we've seen it a few times, other universes where, you know, he is that. He is more productive. You know, I love Blink. I don't love Mr. Creed, but I love Blink, so I put up with Mr. Creed. You know, it's definitely a relationship we have. Uh, Also, I guess I'd never realized before that Craven and Doc Ock are the Sabretooth and Omega Red to Wolverine Spider-Man. Like, there's some interesting parallels there, but that actually led me to something specific. I can forgive Doc Ock things. I can't forgive Craven because I feel like Craven really enjoys the murder, but I'm like Doc Ock also really likes science. So like he's horrible, but goddamn if Superior Dark Rain Doc Ock book isn't so good. So like there's there really is something that I think goes to the and to, to Broadway's point and it's sort of like trying to bring it all together we have a really hard time talking about exactly what Broadway said as a society right you know separating the person from the action and understanding that the action is a part of the person's history but not a part of the person's core and separating the identity of the person from the nature of the inhumane right so but beyond that we love using that in comedy we love making you feel like you shouldn't think that that person's being an asshole because they have a disability so we're going to be put in an awkward situation where they're like oh can you tell that disabled person they're an asshole like or calling out a person of one protected class for being against another protected class in a humorous way so we definitely love using this sort of ahaha but in terms of social construct but the idea of humanizing people who have done something wrong is so hard for the american society and i think it is in part not i think it is a part it's definitely in part because so frequently so many communities 
communities draw those lines across ethnicity and across skin color in a way that creates otherness. And it's so interesting in so many ways that Sabretooth is white because I think Mm -hmm. Sabretooth doesn't read white exactly in a lot of ways. Like the way he's treated is particularly not the unbelievable amount of hand-waving white people get. And he is treated like a person might actually be treated. And Broadway, until you brought up those points so eloquently, I don't know that I ever could have gotten how interesting it is that Sabretooth is white. I mean, he was created as an Iron Fist villain, but like (laughs) that's nothing else, you know? Yeah, I mean, he, in a lot of ways, and I said this on Twitter, like he codes like a, you know, like a 1990s bed you know, gang-banging black person. Like that kind of hyper-masculine. Very Wesley Snipes in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah, and like I couldn't help but like... I don't know. I and I don't know if that was Victor Laval's intention, but that was like what screams at me, and I find that really curious. And I, I also can't help but notice. I mean, I know from my experience, like sometimes the people who are most sort of throw the, lock them up and throw away the key are other black folk in a way that I can't help but notice that like mutants are the ones who are like, well, you didn't, this law didn't exist, but like we're still going to toss you in the prison for it and make an example out of you. Like there's a certain kind of like, I don't know, sort of using this other person as the floor with which you can compare yourself. Like you, the bar is above Sabretooth. And something about that feels very icky to me. I think that the choice of Sabretooth for the first mutant to be thrown in the hole was, for me, it was like one of the most interesting choices in the entirety of Hoxbox. And because it throws down a gauntlet, right? Mm -hmm. It says that future writer, you will have to pick this up and you will have to treat it with extreme care because it's a story that demands a story about prison abolition. It's a story that demands a story about rehabilitative justice. And it's a story that says, we want to tell that story, but we want to tell it with a guy you fucking hate. And I thought that was the most interesting part because like I hate Sabretooth I hate him with every gut of my being all of my gut and he just like they chose like a mutant that like just about everybody despises and would like to see suffer and be punished believe me I've come across it in the Twitter fights um like everybody hates this guy and everybody wants to see him suffer and they throw him down there and then they pose this question like oh but it was like under circumstances that are pretty amoral and like hard to palate for a lot of people for obvious reasons the parallels to american incarceration systems the parallels to the way that you know minority people are treated in the prison system and but i love that this issue brought up the california prison system's use of slave labor to fight fires yes uh, maybe yes. the thing thing about it and my god this is going to be a really good series because this is the writer victor laval really was the guy who picked up the glove and was like all right hickman i got you i'm gonna i'm gonna do this story the just it deserves and i love that it has further nuance by not saying like oh Sabretooth is immediately rehabilitatable he's got his violent urges out in the way that is natural to him and now he has the space to think and the space to choose his destiny and the destiny he chooses is to be a worse piece of shit just a more efficient one and i i love that choice i hate this character still but it makes so much sense yeah king of the shit king of the pieces of shit and in such a childlike manner like he reminds me of a little boy when he's like all right i'm gonna be a pirate and i'm gonna be a king and then i'm gonna be like satan 
Okay, that's base pirate panel, but like the best panel ever. I like the fact that, I mean, again, like Sabretooth being white does add an interesting tension to it because it actually undermines my sympathy for him <laughs> in a really profound way. Like if this is like a black character, I'd be like, hey, get them out of prison. But like, I'm like, nah. <laughs> but like Victor Laval is forcing us to sit in that tension and it's uncomfortable. And I think it's supposed to be. And something that I've been sort of just trying to get people to think about more openly is that like shit is messy in like the world like questions of justice and things like that are super messy and we kind of have to sit in that there was a talk between bell hooks and kevin powell original real world fame who's like become a writer and advocate and they talked about like specifically malcolm x because that's like kevin's sort of idol and they talked about how like going to jail was how red became malcolm x right he learned to not just read but like sit with literature and how a lot of people in prison like talk about that and that to me you know it speaks up when Sabretooth is talking about like his sort of lack of imagination and I'm always curious like well what you know I I don't know like if you've never had time to just like sit with your own thoughts I'm also reading We Real Cool by Bell Hooks which is about black masculinity and so it's like there's this question of like what happens when like black men are able to sit with their thoughts and sort of like and not just black men men that have been subjected to marginalization and violence and like what happens when they get a chance to read and like and be introspective and whatever and maybe he's still gonna be a piece of shit but like not as murderous or maybe they go the california route and have him work for x-force you know like but like there's got to be something better than just being like, you just stay in, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street forever. Hellions yeah. season two. We need that team. We need that group of people that are damaged and former villains and possibly irredeemable working towards something better or at least being manipulated by sinister i I love hellions but now that you've brought up the connection with the california prison system i'm like man i got some really conflicted feelings now (laughs) i find myself saying i think Sabretooth had had too many tries because he's had the flip script at least five times i can think of in 25 years there have been at least five eras where Sabretooth is now a good guy free of his evil free of his darkness and broadway what you're talking about with the time to sit with your thoughts if they could commit to that for this character i'd be about that because that was like one of the most beautiful moving things i've heard i'm like yes sit with your thoughts find what real masculinity is and like but it's not this maimed motherfucker and i think for me part of that and i it's really unfair but i wonder if it's because in many ways i apply giving saber tooth another try to giving so many writers that gave him another try like that's who keeps coming around on this character and that you know obviously victor lavelle is a very different situation because how often are you know men of color given an opportunity to write something in the in, in marvel comics in general let alone a character like this a nuanced character piece in the x office but like i wonder how much of hating Sabretooth is hating the culture that created him's forebearers and not really wanting to see them come back around on these characters. Yeah, Nico, I think that is what I was saying when I was talking about not wanting this book to come up. It's not so much this book, which is amazing and is going to, I think, do a lot to make us think about not just this character, but, you know, ideas of incarceration and justice and punishment. 
but the fact that you know once this is done whether it's the next series with Sabretooth or five years down the line whatever has happened to him whatever progress we've made whatever introspection he's had on page is going to end up getting reversed and we're just going to go back to Sabretooth likes to torture women we get into this push-pull intention of here's this amazing story we'll enjoy it for what it is for now but how is it going to be undone in the future by somebody else who just thinks that murder is cool and that like Sabretooth is like cool because he's like a badass I mean it's much like how people write Logan where like they'll just like erase progress for the sake of like an edgy story I I think that women and people and people of color should be the only ones to write Sabretooth going forward yeah that's completely fair I'm with that I I don't particularly care for this character's progress Sabretooth could fuck himself after the story as far as I'm concerned (laughs) give him time in in the dream sequence (laughs) (laughs) one one, one way or the other it doesn't matter to me it matters to me is how good this story is and what it's about like the the way it's being told is and the subject that it's tackling and the the care with which it's tackling it is like far more important to me this could have honestly been any character for the story it just happens to work well because it's such a hateable one for me but like I I know that many people are going to care about Sabretooth staying this way and I personally would not care for any more gendered violence from Sabretooth ever Agreed. Beyond that, I I don't actually have a lot of investment in Sabretooth's personal development. I like I hope this I hope he grows and I hope it sticks. I don't know if the story is actually even going in that direction. It seems like he's becoming a more efficient supervillain, but a less random one. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention the kind of paradise lost in the room. Yes. Which again, I. I can't help but like, I mean, one, if that means that like Sabretooth is like a begrudging gay man, like then I'll be happy because like Paradise Lost (laughs) is very gay. That mapped on to incarceration and the sort of like satanification of people, right? Like I, those things are all interconnected, but I can't help but like think about how like Paradise Lost is really about like somebody being like, I was the best and you like threw me out and like I'm upset about it to be like super productive and like how dare you right like it is a story of like resentment and i wonder what that means for the quiet council because a god doesn't look like a good person if you really like dig into like lucifer's lore like he doesn't look like a good person no, no. that's really underselling it yeah <laughs> so like i just wonder like how we'll end up viewing the quiet council it's reign of x especially the late reign of x and x-men like seven and six for example are pushing against our faith in the quiet council and being like y'all gotta kind of shape up i'm also like a small d democrat so the idea of this like 12 person group deciding everything is like particularly icky to me yeah if we carry this lucifer metaphor forward which laval clearly wants us to do with the end of this comic book uh it is important to note that the next thing that he does out of resentment is go and fuck up paradise for everybody <laughs> yep yeah yeah